Welcome to the Highly Objective Podcast, where we talk to cannabis industry executives and investors and go into the weeds on recent news. Welcome to today's episode with your host, Day Trung, as he talks to Jonathan Sandelman, Chairman and CEO at Air Wellness. Jonathan is a 30-year veteran of banking and finance. He served as president of Bank of America Securities after building its capital markets business through the early 2000s. Subsequently, he founded and served as CEO of multi-billion dollar asset manager, Sandelman Partners. Yay! Um, so, started at Solomon Brothers, uh, I don't know if you know that, uh, and quickly ended up running the all the global equities, proprietary trading, sat on the risk committee, all those good things. Then I uh, decided to do uh, a deal with Bank of America, it was Nation Bank, became Bank of America, where for seven years, uh, I built a business from scratch. It was an equity financial products business. It had seven years, no negative months, 36% returns. And, um, and we split the economics. Uh, towards the end of that tenure, I was thinking about leaving to start my hedge fund. They offered me the president of the securities company, which I did for a while, and then went to the bank and said, I'm, I'm, I've made the decision, I'm gonna leave. And, Open Sandalwood Partners, which was a multi-strategy hedge fund, ran that to the end of 09, beginning at 10, and opened up Mercer Park, which was, uh, which still is, and still runs, uh, my family office. So, one thing you may not know about me, uh, I learned lessons in life, and uh, after many years, one lesson I learned that took me many years was that. I have certain core competencies and that when I focus on my core competencies, invest around my core competencies, um, I win. And when I stray, I lose. So in 2017, the family office is investing around those core competencies. We built up several different disciplines all around the things that I've done my whole life. In 17, I get a phone call where the person on the other side of the phone said, John, I have this really interesting idea. I said, well, it's great. Um, describe it to me and he said, well, it's an industry that's growing north of 35%. It's highly fragmented and has limited access to capital. And I said, well, that sounds great. That's right in my wheelhouse. And he, I said, what is it? And he goes, cannabis. And I said, well, that's not really my core competency. Um, so I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna stray because that doesn't work for me. And he went on and on and I said, well, thank you. But he triggered an idea in my mind. And so I started to do work in and around the idea of investing in cannabis to figure out, well, maybe this could be a once in a lifetime CPG business that you get to build from scratch. I love building businesses. Um, I have a philosophy around doing it. I have a playbook and how to execute, build fast, so maybe. So I did my work and I was looking at the total market cap of cannabis at then, which was only in the Canadian companies, and it was 40 billion. Then I started to look at the US and I said, well, where cannabis is legal, beer sales in those states are trending down. So maybe there's a paradigm shift in consumer taste, particularly by younger consumers. Then I looked at the asset values and they seemed quite cheap at that time in the US. And I said, well, 
let's figure out why they're cheap because sometimes assets just stay cheap, right? And it was Jeff Sessions at the time that was threatening uh, to put people in jail if they were touching the plant. I did more work because that's what I do, discipline investor, do a lot of research. And it turns out that his budget didn't allow for him to do that because there was a, an amendment to the budget at that time called the Robacher Amendment, which specifically said he could not use his budget to go against wheat. The market didn't know that. So I called it the regulatory misperception arbitrage. There was a, this perception, which was not reality, which compressed margin um, multiples. And so now that becomes really interesting. And lastly, because I'm a relative value investor and a mathematician, I start to think about, well, if the total market cap globally, Canadian capitalization of the exchanges, all, their, all the companies, it's 40 billion at that time. And then I started to add up Coke and Pepsi and beer and tobacco and said, these, these companies, what's their market cap? And you know, it's cl close to a trillion dollars. I said, well, there's a convergence trade here, right? 40 billion to something like a trillion in market cap. We should start focusing on that because consumer tastes are changing. Beer sales are impact something's going to change. So the 40 billion seems too cheap, trillion seems too rich, and that should converge over time. And that's how I simply got focused on it. Now I did the first SPAC in cannabis because the vehicle was the most appropriate vehicle at that time to allow investors to start focusing on the US opportunity. Because at this point, most investors were focused on the Canadian LPs. Yeah, no, I think, uh, you know, the way you guys did it made a lot of sense in terms of forming the SPAC and treating it, you know, like you said, playing to your strengths of more so rolling up. I think at that time, it was Massachusetts and, and Nevada, right, as, as your first two states. Um, and, you know, very interesting point you brought up. Um, and I'm actually pretty familiar with one of your directors, uh, Chris Berggrove. Um, is, is he kind of a, a big influence in sort of how you are going after brands today? I know you have, you know, three core brands sort of, uh, you know, kind, origin, and recent M&A, Levia, um, but in terms of looking at how beer has grown, how you market to that consumer, and maybe even using him as an advantage to say, how do you, you know, convince those Anheuser-Busch beer consumers over to now, you know, a Levia product, for example? So I, I wouldn't say the, the, the Levia product didn't start with a conversation with Chris. Levia started with a conversation um, that I had with my 28-year-old son. And so he's been very focused generally on the beverage business. He had one. He owns this brand called Chacha Matcha. There's three or four in California, seven or eight in the U.S. Uh, it's a matcha, you know, version of Starbucks, right? And the branding is amazing. And the demand for the product was extraordinary. And he built a, a can business, which was in stores. So he's been very focused on that. And we talk, often talked about his own business. And then he focused me on the trends in the hard seltzer markets, which I wasn't really focused on, White Claw and Truly and all the various others. Now I go into supermarkets, I go into liquor stores, the amount of hard seltzers, whether it's, it's a malt-based beverage or some kind of alcohol uh, cocktail can is tremendous. 
I mean, when I went, when I announced to the market that I bought Levia, some of the people who I followed up, the analysts said, well, John, it's such a small market. And I said, well, hard seltzer three years ago was tiny. Now it's projected to be over $10 billion. There's a shift again, a paradigm shift in demand, right? Younger people like low calorie beverages, zero calorie. Levia is zero calories, right? It's, it's, I, it's this particular product, the reason why I focused on it so much is because the science behind it, you're gonna hear us talk and the market will start talking about it, but for sure you'll hear Eric talk about the integrity of the product, right? The, is it bioavailable? What do I mean? Well, if it says five milligrams on a can, am I getting 100% of five or am I getting 30% and really one and a half? So this bioavailability, bioavailability, the science, the science around the emulsion is becoming the focus because consumers are very focused on the value proposition you offer them, right? How much THC do I get for my dollar? And we appreciate and understand that. Second of all, it's all about getting newer consumers. So I was very focused on that, right? So I look at the consumers that are not in, in enjoying cannabis at this point, are not trying cannabis, but they're, but they're in enjoying beverages. And I said, it may be easier to get people to try the product when it's not smoking flour, because people don't like smoke, or vaping, some people don't like to vape, or having a gummy bear, because people hear some stories that people have eaten too many of those, right? So to me, it was an easy transition from, a hard seltzer with alcohol and a hard seltzer to THC. And if you think about our consumer, there's a massive overlap between the consumer that enjoys alcohol and that same consumer enjoying THC. So if the science and the emulsion is good and it's 100% bioavailable, and in 15 minutes, you know exactly where you are because of the onset is quick, then, like the hard seltzers, young people like to session drink with zero calories. And so I understood the overlap of the consumer and also the consumer that has been curious about cannabis, but just couldn't find it the form factor. Lastly, I believe when the big beverage companies come, this is a bet of mine that I feel very strongly about. When they come, are they gonna come for flour, vape pen, concentrates, gummy bears? To me, it's the easiest of all the cannabis-based products for them to understand. They are camp people, they are bottling people. They already have massive distribution. So it's the easiest product of all the THC products to fit right into their brand portfolios and put on their brand trucks. And that's why I got super excited about THC beverages, but most importantly about Levia, because Levia has the science and Levia tastes great. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's kind of what I suspected, you know, kind of drove you guys to do this acquisition sooner than, you know, other MSOs into the space, right? Obviously, GTI has a pretty big relationship with CAN, but that's kind of arm's length. Um, but you guys made the full jump into the acquisition. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think one, it sounds like it's it's kind of the science and the technology and the formulation behind it that that Troy has built that attracted you to it's um you know, kind of the right trend that's still early that then gives you guys a lot of optionality with what you want to do with that product. Um, and then, you know, one that I think would love your opinion on for Levia is from a branding standpoint, you know, that didn't really get brought up. Um, do you think brand is something, you know, similar to what you guys did with Kind and with Origin that you guys are going to focus more on this brand for TC beverages? And then from there, how quickly do you bring it from Massachusetts to the other seven markets that you're in today? You will see AIR announce in the fall a major marketing push. So interesting enough, in the beginning, I had limited dollars, right? And I, you know, I, I had to make some capital allocation choices. I could buy best-in-class assets, which I did. I could continue to do that and build this great portfolio that we have. Or... Use some of that money to change all the stores that I bought. So we bought a store, it's called Sierra Natural. The consumer loves that store. That's why we bought it. They love that brand. Sierra is one of the best brands in the state. I could have spent my limited dollar when we started and changed that to air stores, right? And I could have done that on every acquisition. That would have been millions of dollars. I chose to leave their brand, individual brands, not to confuse the customer in the beginning, they were loyal to their brands and, con and continue to do acquisitions in M&A, right? What you'll see from us in the fall is a major rollout, I said this on the earnings call, of the rebranding of all of our stores to air stores. Second, you will see our branding around our national brands. You know, I talked about in the earnings call, the number of wholesale accounts, number of stores we're in went up two and a half, three times so far this year. So the brand portfolio and the quality of the product is resonating. Now we take a different philosophy, right? We say at air, like any other CPG company would say, it all starts with the product. Right? It's about the integrity of the product that you sell. That's the basis for CPG to be successful over long periods of time. So at AIR, it's all about the plan because that's what we're selling. And our stated goal is to be the largest scale producer of high quality cannabis, flour. Because it all starts with the flour, all the other products. And so AIR has picked three brands out of our 500 SKUs, Kind Flower, Origin Extract, and Levia to be the three brands that we put all of our marketing dollars to create a much larger wholesale business in this drive to build the first national brands. Now, sometimes you get market testing and it comes back the way you want it to, and sometimes it doesn't. Levia, in just a few months, 
has an 80% market share in Massachusetts. And it has lots of competition. Now we get to take that brand, which resonated in investors' mind. And I think it's because of the consumer experience for the reasons we talked about earlier. And in every state where we are allowed to sell beverages, we will set up the assembly lines. And that's what I loved about these guys is that they set up their bottling line, their production line, and then produce the product. They know how to do it quickly. They know how to do it at low cost. Because if you are trying to produce a canned beverage in the United States, there's so much competition to get on the, uh, on the canning machines. You could wait up to two years. First mover advantage. We take Levia, who has dominant market share in Massachusetts. We set up production in every state where we're allowed to sell it. And we have the first mover advantage in the THC beverage business. And that's what makes us excited. Got it. And, and you know, from choosing those three SKUs and, and brands from, you know, that the 500 that you have, um, what, what other factors went into that? You know, so you mentioned market share and how well Levia has done in Massachusetts. Um, you know, is it NPS? Like what, what else are you using to measure and, and choosing those three brands to put millions of dollars in, in marketing and, and branding behind? There's a, so we have a very today, which we didn't have a year ago. And, you know, in some days privately, I laughed that we've had these success building these brands without even a marketing department, right? So it was just the quality it spoke for itself. It was the consumer experience that resonated with our consumers, right? Because again, it's not the box, it's what's inside the box. Consumers know the difference. So we had almost no marketing up until recently, but now we have a very robust team and we have very detailed plans to roll these out. And from their research, kind flour is thought to be extraordinarily high quality flour on a consistent basis. And orange in extracts is of equal quality in the extract market. And Levia, we spoke, is a dominant player in their state. And so from our market research, um, we decided to narrow down the portfolio to put the majority of our marketing dollars talent into the retail and wholesale business. Think about it. So let's say next year I have 100 stores. I'm already in 280 stores with the wholesale market. And if your goal is to build a national brand, my goal is to be in a thousand stores. So where the consumer shops for the best quality experience, they will see Kind, Origin, and Levia. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Um, and, and then, you know, transitioning from that and in, into the states you're in, and then I think the, the other question is, you know, how from a strategic standpoint, you guys either work with or kind of stay out of each other's way with, you know, your, your SPAC that you did, um, which, which consummated in the class house brands deal. But, you know, there's this thought in the industry um, that MSOs haven't really subscribed to, but, you know, you certainly have investors pushing that you kind of need to be in California. So, you know, from a wholesale perspective, I, I think Cresco in, in California of the MSOs probably has the, the bigger, 
biggest presence, right? Relatively speaking. Um, how do you think about California? And then you have that second question of how do you guys divide and, and conquer, or maybe it's, you know, arm's length, or maybe there's not really a conversation either with uh, Glasshouse, but, you know, you certainly do share your, your head of M&A is, is on the board and, and obviously you have ownership in, in Glasshouse. So Glasshouse is my family office investment. There's no relationship to speak of between Air and Glasshouse. We Got saw it. that as an opportunity. We make investments. Um, they would never have considered selling to air. They wanted to be an independent company. The way they speak about it, I don't necessarily speak about it this way, but they, they saw this back as a, a financing opportunity for growth. So it was never an air opportunity um, for them, a financing opportunity, and they're driving that business. And I have no input into that, just a passive investor. In terms of California, to be frank, I have looked at investing in California since 2017. It seems to me that if you're really trying to build the first national brands in this industry, that California, because it's the fourth largest GDP or fifth largest GDP in the United States um, and a $5 billion legal market, a $10 billion, if you include it, illegal, um, you got to figure it out. The issue is the illegal market has been so dominant. Even some of the best brands kind of play and straddle both sides of the fence, right? Yeah, yeah. We're a public company and you don't know me well, but reputations matter to me. And the people I'm in business, their reputation and their personal brand, they're co-branding with myself, my, my fellow teammates and the Air brand. And it stands for integrity. It has a culture, Air has a culture. It's funny enough, it's, I say it all the time. I say it on my podcast. I say it on my earnings call. We lead with our culture. We lead with our talent. We lead with our people. We're transparent. We're honest. We're respectful to each other. We're dedicated to our communities. And so it's been difficult for me who understands how important California should be in the mix to find those partners what you might not know about me is a perfect deal for air is where I get a great asset and I get more teammates, more partners, more talent. For me, I've had a 30 year philosophy that talent is free, the best people. And no matter what I pay them, they drove shareholder value. Now talent is not just defined by genius. It's a cultural thing, right? It's this, mutual respect and of sharing ideas and sharing IP so that we all get better. All of our products, our company, our systems, because we're respectful to each other and there's a lot to learn from each other. So it's been about who that company is that has a, a common philosophy in business, honesty, integrity, technology, operational skills. And I don't disagree with you. I understand where you're going. 
and we're, we actively are looking for that. Got it. So, so what I gather is California, you know, of any of the scale players that might be recognizable brands. Um, I, I agree with you on that point that they're operating potentially in, you know, both legal and illegal markets. Um, but then kind of taking that approach you did with Levia, why not then, you know, look at something that's maybe not at scale revenue yet? Because I think, you know, in June, Levia was maybe what a million at retail. So call it $500,000 in June um, in, in wholesale. But why not take a, a brand that might not be of scale, but then you might know or can confirm that they're operating and doing things the right way and kind of use that to, to scale up. So you, you, you differentiate your mind. Small scale people are honest and large scale are dishonest. No, I, I more so mean just I'm like joking. It, I'm joking. I'm okay. joking. Okay. <laughs> I just mean, yeah, because because let, let's say someone told me they did hundred million in, in sales here in California, right? I would have to be like, okay, well, if I just go to the 700 or so legal dispensary, I might not see your products at all of them. And then in there, they might not have the volume. So I can't somehow make my assumptions to make a hundred million in revenue work in California, right? And, and I think you've probably done the math on that with your team. <laughs> So, so you're right, right? That's a dilemma we've had. You know, some of the brands that are the most successful in the state and, you, and we see and hear the numbers, it's just extraordinary. And then when you do the work, you, you get scared. You know what I mean? It just, public markets have zero tolerance for this stuff. And these companies, talk about being able to sell themselves one day into the public markets. I hear that. I don't know how they'll do an audit. So, you know, when, when we, when we had this back, we looked at some great brands and in Canada, you need a, there's a three-year audit requirement. And there were very few people that could do it. But, you know, I think times are changing and I don't want to sound negative on California because there are a few people that we do talk to that we like a lot. And they're, they're high quality individuals. They've built really good businesses. And, and those are the kind of people we would do business with. Yeah, I think it's, it's something to pay attention to. Certainly, um, and kind of figure out the right time to jump in, right? As I'm sure, you know, from your experience with Liberty and, and with Levy, it seems like you guys definitely pay attention to things and then kind of wait for, for the right timing to, to jump on certain acquisitions. Look, I think you probably understand. I did my five qualifying transactions in the SPAC, right? And then I waited 13 months to do the sixth and the seventh and the eighth, ninth. 10th and 11th. And, and it was because of what I saw in the market. I thought it was irrational. I called cannabis 1.0, right? The market was going crazy. But I, I waited it out, waited it out. You know, I've been a disciplined investor. And so I understood this, how irrational and overly enthusiastic. And, and we know, right? You, you've been in the finance business, is that markets just don't move from the left quadrant to the right quadrant in a straight line. There's always corrections. So we waited. And during that period of time, we waited to make our move. The, the charge to the team was this. 
I'm going to wait. I'm going to be disciplined. This market will correct. But during this period of time, this 13 months, I didn't know it was going to be 13 months, but it did turn out to be 13 months. Let's build out our teams. I want the depth and breadth of talent. I want the technology, the operating stack, the tech stack to be highly refined so that when we decide to move as a team, it's no different than if we bought a store across the street. Okay, we could put it in our talent. We can put it in our technology. You probably don't realize it, but the day we close our deals, there's no legacy system. Other people we compete with have made many acquisitions, have many systems. That day we close, that asset, that company is on our technology. Complete oversight and control. And that comes from being you know, in business prior to this. So it's about operational efficiencies and total control of the businesses. So I paused and, um, and then the market corrected. And then there was cannabis 2.0. And if you've been watching us, we've been moving at a, at a very fast clip right now because we have the resources, the human capital and the technology and the know-how to put our, our teams in place with the current management to build out these businesses. And I feel fortunate, you know, I've heard other, uh, other um, leaders of MSOs and said, wow, they don't mention us by name. They said, well, they're paying high prices. They're paying five and six multiples. Now, I believe the implied multiple that Air is paying is less because each business we've been able to improve. So the multiple is even less because we've been able to increase the revenue in every single one of these assets and the EBITDA. But when I think about how this business, when you buy best in class assets at five and six times can be rich, I really, really start to wonder what they're comparing it to. Because when I look at alcohol, premium brand alcohol, that grows three to 8% a year, trades at 25 or 30 times EBITDA multiples, this is a business where we grew 225% quarter over quarter. I mean, year over year, I'm sorry, almost 59% quarter over quarter. And we're trading at under seven. I'm buying companies at five and six. In the long run, how could that be cheap? For me, the greatest risk is not paying five or six, is go out three to five years when there's some kind of federal legalization. And these companies are trading at 25 and 30 times because when that wall of money is allowed to come in, these multiples will overshoot. And the risk that I'm not willing to bear for my shareholders is to be there three and five years out and look back and say, I could have bought all of this for five and six times with these kind of growth characteristics, this kind of brand, this kind of consumer appetite, this paradigm shift in what consumers prefer. To me, that's the greatest risk if you don't have the right team in place 
and you're not active in the M&A market. Yeah, I, I think, you know, looking beyond just the next year or two, um, certainly then, you know, makes your acquisitions look a lot more attractive. I'm actually a, a big fan of the M&A moves you guys have done. I think, you know, when Liberty came out, um, people might question that in terms of valuation, if they did, if they didn't, but you guys have certainly shown from the execution and improving yield. And I think wasn't crop loss like 25% when you yes. announced the deal and you guys certainly reduced that down a lot. So then again, in, in hindsight, that acquisition is starting to look better and better by the day and, and no one- Well, well think about that. Liberty. I paid $290 million. I, you know, I, I, I talked to this company for two years before we were able to get a deal. We've already gone from roughly 30 stores to 40 stores, stated goals to be 50 by the end of the year. I feel comfortable we'll be in and around that either slightly less or more. You know, we'll see how it shakes out. Everything comes down to, to in the regulatory process, approval process, but super aggressive. We moved from number four store account when we bought it to the number two store account. Our sales moved us up to number three or four in the state. <coughs> What did I know? I, always, I said this to you earlier, just because something's cheap doesn't mean it will get uncheap, right? So you have to look at the drivers of the cheapness. And this all had to do with cultivation. And we're good on cultivation because I collect cultivators because if you believe everything starts with the plant and you wanna be the largest scale producer of high quality weed, you need a lot of great cultivator, cultivation talent. So I knew I had that. And we did our due diligence and we knew what, what was going to be required to fix us. You know, Liberty, when we bought it, had one or two or three days of flour in the store. So the consumer didn't know when the flour was there. And it was two strains and now it's 12 and going to 15 strains. And so it all, we were able to fix this very quickly and move up on the tables very fast. But what I have said publicly is that I think in the near future, Liberty by itself, because you look at some of the bigger players who were you know, at one point single state operators and you look at their market cap. Today I have 40 and they have 87 and I'll have 50 and we'll see where they are at the end of the year, right? And I've already planted 20 acres of shade house and we'll continue to expand. That Liberty, if it was a standalone company, will be worth more than air is worth in, in its entirety today. So I, I think it was a great value play. It played to our core competency and strengths, which is in the cultivation, you have to be able to fix it. And our team has done an extraordinary job doing that. And then also accelerating the store count. So I'm very bullish on that asset. Awesome. Sorry if you mentioned this on the earnings call. Um, I, I know in a prior interview, I think back in May, you mentioned trying to get flower and Liberty stores seven days a week by July. Um, Do you guys hit that goal? Yes. Awesome. Um, and, and you know something you mentioned, um, this is probably now that we have about eight minutes or so left, wanting to get into some of the juicier questions. Um, look, numbers looked great, right? Q2 is 91 million in revenue, 50% sequential growth, uh, EBITDA 27.4 million, 49% sequential growth. You guys increased 2022 revenue target to 800 million with 300 million of adjusted EBITDA. 
um, guidance for next quarter is 100 million revenue. Even though it's going to be flat, but still 10% sequential growth. Um, and I know you guys have this slide that I, I think I've seen almost every quarter of comparing yourselves to the other MSOs and, and kind of showing that you're trading at a discount relative to your competitors, even though you know you have the numbers to back it up. Um, and obviously, if you look at the stock price and it, it's more of a MSO cannabis uh, market in general, that, that's kind of taking some hits lately. Um, you know, question for you is. <laughs> Do you pay attention to that daily? Um, and you know, when sort of do you expect things to go back to you know a non-volatile environment, or why might things be so volatile in the last quarter or two? So there's several questions. One is when do I think the bear market in cannabis in general ends? Was your last question, I think. Yeah. So, so we're fair? not seeing, you know, crazy like 25% declines, right? Like you can right. see declines here and there. And it's, it, it's more the disconnect of you put up great numbers. Like I, I think you take cannabis out of this and this is any other industry uh, with those numbers, uh, usually stocks will, will go up probably a, a fair amount, um, you know, after we report versus kind of being flat-ish. So I, I, I can't tell you I'm the greatest predictor of when stocks go up and down. Um, so I'm not even going to attempt to do that. You know, I'm a long-term investor. I've always tried to be a long-term investor. And as long as my, my bull case is rational, uh, I'm waiting, uh, I'm willing to wait it out. I think air on a relative basis has done better on the downside than it has on the upside. Um, and so I don't know, does that make me happy? You know, that we outperformed while all stocks are going down. Somewhat, look, I think we have a great company. I think we put strung together great assets. I think in the beginning, people would say, oh, they're just finance people. What do they know? And I think we've proven that we're extraordinary operators because we were all operators, but also have financial background. And, and when, when, when being a good finance person is a negative, it, it's just shocking to me. Because this is all about fiscal, you know, financial discipline and operational discipline. I mean, I, I, in 30 years, I never understood how people could build tall buildings on weak foundations. We're public companies. And what do you think when CBG actually comes in to make their acquisitions? Don't you think they're going to look for the company that have the culture and the discipline that mirrors their own? Who do you think they're going to choose? The person who has the biggest market cap or the group of people who've proven themselves to be moral and ethical and who've been super disciplined in their build out because that's who the buyer is. And the buyer will only pick a company whose culture is similar to their own because they're going to move into the market cautiously and they're going to need to trust those people, in my view, more. You know, in my old days, when I had a lot of risk takers on a global basis, the people that were furthest away on a global basis were the people I trusted most, even more than the people that sat across from me and next to me. And so when they move, it's not going to be a subject they're immediately going to be comfortable with. But in my view, they're, they're going to be pushed into either by activists or the board because of this erosion in their market from alcohol to THC from big beer to craft beer, they're going to move. And they're going to want to trust the CEO and the CFO and the COO and the whole team. 
because they're upstanding individuals. Yeah, I, I can agree more of that. I, I used to be on the MA team at Anheuser Busch. I was looking at sort of non beer. Um, and, you know, that's a very unique culture that's very much so based in, you know, loyalty and, and sort of being very conservative with zero based budgeting. So I, I totally agree with, with everything you're saying in terms of, you know, when the larger alcohol and CPG companies come into space, what, what they're looking for from a, a target. And just remember, well, I never advertise this because I liked the idea that I was a business builder and operator, you know, a hedge fund manager. That was really what I thought about my skill set. I was the president of Bank of America Securities. And in that period of time, I understand big corporate discipline. So when I went into the business in 17, I rarely say that. I said, I'm investing. Where do I think it's going to be five years from now? What is the catalyst? Who are the buyers? And then I reverse engineer back five years back and build the company to be the most appealing company for that event. So that's the way we built air. Yeah, that, that makes a, a lot of sense. Um, I, I kind of, you know, take a similar approach in, in trying to think through startups. Um, and, you know, your, your five-year plan is, is next year in 2022. So it seems like I don't know if you, you drew up exactly those uh, revenue and EBITDA numbers, but- No, you know, I did. <laughs> 30, no, I 30, did. 37 and a half uh, percent EBITDA margins. If you hit that stated guidance, um, yeah, that, that's going to impress a lot of the, the alcohol companies for sure. Do you know, to be, I don't know you well, but you know, the other day after the earnings call, because uh, you know, I started this company with just myself and my assistant has been with me for 15 years. And I'm not a, a person that ever just sits back and takes time to appreciate the things that I do or are involved in, right? I'm just always in the drive mode. And then after the earnings call, I said, we're in bed going to sleep. And I said, can you believe this? We went from zero to 800 million. And that's if I don't do more M&A. Yep. I said, you know, it's those rare moments that I, I allow myself to think about. Unbelievable. So you're absolutely right. I could never have imagined we would be at this point at this time. But we are. And we're going to continue down this very disciplined approach, building the real national brands, not with pretty boxes but with the contents and the focus like any other brilliant CPG company on the products we sell. It's all about the plant and growing the high quality plant at scale. And for me, there's never a single business model, right? There's lots of different ways to get there. But for our company, you have to understand what a stickler I am in terms of delivering the consistent consumer experience in every state. The same trimmers, the same extracting machines, the same SOPs. So wherever the consumer visits an air store, and you'll see those all converted next year, they walk in in a new town where they may not know the local brands, but they see the air store and they know the air store and what it stands for. And with their hard-earned money, they don't want to take a risk. They want to buy what they know 
to be consistently excellent. And that's it. Great. I, I think that's, uh, I applaud that approach. And it seems like you guys are certainly executing that. So certainly uh, looking for that expansion beyond the 280 stores and getting you know, your, your core three brands to uh, a, a lot more stores. Um, just want to ask you one last question, because I know you have to run. Um, you know, you joined Twitter uh, June of this year. And while some investors and, and other CEOs, your competitors are very active on there, I've noticed you you know, kind of are dabbling in it, but, but having gotten super active. So what's kind of the thinking there? And, and are you committing more time to Twitter, which has a very active uh, retail investor base that's, that's constantly on there? So the truth is, I, I, I didn't even think to go on Twitter. Um, my IR and PR people set up the account for me. And they said, well, John, you said this today. Do you mind putting, if we put this on it, a mistake I made is I'm probably not promotional enough. Like I, I'm in the granular details, right? I work this seven days a week. I'm in the building phase and I need to get better in the promotional phase. So I rarely did podcasts. Rob, are you on? Rob left. He had Rob a, left. yes, he had a 2.30. Okay. So it's only recently that we have an IR firm and we have a PR department and they, they said, John, we did a survey and people want to hear you talk about air. So I'm going to get more focus. I'm definitely going to do a better job. And sounds like listening to you, it's something that the, the market responds to. So I have to be more cognizant of that. Yeah, I'll be watching out for your uh, CNBC appearances. I, I know you're not uh, on there as often as other MSF yeah. CEOs. So uh, yeah, I'll be looking out for that. They're more photogenic. <laughs> no, I, I think uh, <laughs> I, I, I saw one of the video interviews you did. Uh, I think, uh, you know, come across pretty well there. So, uh, you know, <laughs> maybe next time we'll get you on video uh, for, for the next one. Okay. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I, I really appreciate uh, this time together. Yeah. Thank you, John. This was great. Really appreciate okay. it. Be well. Thanks. Bye.